Well, great to see you guys again. Thanks for coming back out. This is installment three of our little journey through my time with you, and I see a few familiar faces back, so apparently if you're back, that's not a bad sign, so, um, and some new faces as well. So I had three sessions with you throughout our time together, and the first was sort of a big overview of how to think Christianly in a hostile world. That was the chapel in here yesterday, and then if you were there at the 4 p.m. session, I talked about uh, apocryphal gospels, lost gospels, and what makes our gospels unique, and sort of gave an apologia for the canonical four. When we had that conversation yesterday, we, we started down the path of talking about this whole realm of study of mine on the origins and development of the New Testament canon. And so that's what I want to focus our last session on today, is sort of how the canon was put together and where it came from and why we should think that's a reliable process at all. And that's such a massive topic that I've, I've thought about how to sort of boil it down in a way you can understand the day and that I think is profitable for our, our conversation. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out the, the biggest misconceptions about the origins of the New Testament canon. So this is, I'm laying out five of what I see are the biggest uh, misunderstandings that people have about how the New Testament canon uh, was formed. And so this is going to be, I hope, about 20 minutes of me laying that out. And then I want to leave about 15 minutes for Q&A because I think that's where the interesting conversation can happen. So it's going to be more informal than a sermon, obviously, not a full lecture really like yesterday. It's sort of a, an in-between, oh, excuse me, an in-between um, way of speaking. Uh, now, as we get through that, let me say that, uh, uh, you know, some of you are going to be asking questions about, well, where can I go for more after this? Um, and, you know, Grant asked me to maybe leave a book list at some point, and I'll try to put something like that together. But in the meantime, let me just point you to my website, so if you're interested in more on canon and text and a biblical authority, I have a website called Canon Fodder, if you get the pun. Um, and that's canon with one N. If you haven't figured it out yet, the biblical canon has one N, and the canon like boom canon has two Ns, right? So uh, my students always make that mistake in their papers. They'll, give, they'll write canon with two Ns, and I'm always marking it up all the time. So a little forewarning for you there. So canon with one N, Canon Fodder is the name of my, my website. Or you can just look up my name, michaeljkruger.com, and you'll see it. On that site, I have lectures, videos, articles, blog posts, the all, all kinds of material that you can go deeper into this. And certainly, if you really want to go deeper into this, then there's some books on there that I've written that I think you'll benefit from. So that's sort of the where to go when you're done. But for our purposes here, I have these five sort of misconceptions on canon I want to lay out for you uh, in our time together. Now, to sort of set the stage for this, I want to begin by taking us back about 15 years. Now, 15 years, many of you were, you know, running around as toddlers, so leaving that aside for the moment, uh, going back 15 years, there was a very famous book that was published that you know about because you've heard about it. It was made into a major motion picture called The Da Vinci Code, published in about 2003. Now, this was a fictional book by a, a novelist by the name of Dan Brown, uh, and he, in that book, explores all kinds of things related to early Christianity. And, of course, one of his biggest claims in the book is that Jesus was married and had kids and all this. Well, I'm not going to discuss that. But what's interesting about that book, and if, if you caught sort of the residual impact of that book even later as you grew up, you realize that, that book talked a lot about the origins of the New Testament canon. It talked about how the books were put together and how the process worked and who made the decisions and when it happened and and how it was done, and what books were left out, and all these kinds of things. It was a very provocative, and I will say entertaining, book about the origins of Christianity. At the same time, it was, on a historical level, uh, you know, 
grossly inaccurate almost at every turn. Um, time and time again, Dan Brown would make claims about the way the cannon formed and how it happened that are just flat out wrong and just made up and mistaken. And what was interesting about that book is the sort of cultural impact it had on the way people think about canon. But also, it's, what's interesting about that book is the sheer panic that was caused within evangelical Christianity over it. I can tell you, of all the scholarly books that have been published out there, I, I don't hear hardly a peep from people. Maybe because I don't read them, which maybe is part of the problem, right? But in terms of the fictional book, The Da Vinci Code, I cannot tell you how many emails and phone calls and, and knocks on my door of people begging for explanations. Well, what, how do we refute Dan Brown? And I'm like, I don't have to refute Dan Brown, right? Dan Brown is a novelist who just made things up, so there's no reason to refute it. But you realize people are looking for answers. So the canon question's a big one, okay? And so what we're dealing with here is this question of how it was put together. We're just talking about the New Testament in this session and sort of what took place. Um, so much to say on this, but let me jump into my five misconceptions for you. These might be misconceptions you have, or this might be misconceptions you've heard of, or some of these you might even didn't even know were misconceptions. So I'm going to walk through five, and then I'll take your questions. Let's start with the first one. First misconception is this, that Christianity was a purely oral religion that was not interested at all in books or writing things down or anything related to a canon. This is a widespread misconception out there. By the way, all these misconceptions you can find both on the internet, uh, you can find anything on the internet, uh, I mean in the scholarly world, this is a big one that's circulating all around. And the narrative goes something like this, that the idea of a canon is a late after the fact idea, probably born in the third or fourth century, um, and someone decided we should have books that catalog our faith. But in the earliest generations, Christians weren't interested in such things, we're told. They were interested in just passing down their teachings by word of mouth. They didn't like books. They didn't, weren't interested in books. It was all an oral religion anyway. They were just interested in sort of proclamation. And the whole inscripturation idea is a late idea that's really out of sync with the values of early Christianity. Now, what's lurking behind that misconception is a whole field of study that you may have picked up in your religion classes called form criticism, which is this idea that everything in early Christianity was oral by word of mouth and not looking to the scriptural text. Now, if you believe this misconception, you can see how hard it is to think that there would be an early canon because you're thinking, well, Christians weren't interested in such things. The last thing on their mind was books. Christians were just interested in sort of word of mouth passing things down, and this idea of having a collection of authoritative books was so foreign, so the argument goes. Now, I've responded to this objection in a number of my different writings, but just real quickly on this first one, this, I think, misses the boat massively in terms of the nature of early Christianity. And in fact, I think you already intuitively know how to respond to this. Think about Christianity's early heritage. The heritage of early Christians was a Jewish heritage. The earliest Christians were were Jews. They worshipped the temple, and they had an Old Testament. Already from the beginning, Christians were people of the book just by virtue of being Jews who inherited a, a book, a written text. Beyond that, we have records that indicate that Christians wrote and wrote very early. Some of our earliest Christian writings are in the 40s of the first century, particularly James and Galatians. Christians are already writing books, and these weren't books that were sort of, um, you know, thin, sort of shallow type writings that show they're really not interested in, in, in written things. No, these are the kind of writings that interact with the Old Testament text in nuanced and sophisticated ways, showing that Christians were textual, they were textually oriented, and they were interested in books. Above and beyond that, one of the things that's interesting is that Christians had their own distinctive book technology. 
This is something a lot of people don't know, and I've also written about this in other places. When Christians started to write, they actually had their own format for doing it. Everything up to this point in the ancient world was on scrolls, okay, or what we would call rolls, where you roll up each end and it's writing only on one side of the page. Christians actually, from the very beginning, wrote on what are called codices, or a codex, where you have writings on both sides of the page. Christians did this early, they did this extensively, without exception hardly, and what you realize is that Christians in in some sense, had their own book technology that developed along with their religious faith, showing that they were very textually oriented. What does all that mean? What all that means is, is that the idea that, that, that Christianity is an oral religion that would have kept it from thinking in canonical categories just doesn't work. I would argue that Christians were textually uh, sort of uh, uh, directed from the very beginning. They were already sort of textually attuned. They already thought in categories like books and documents. If so, then you would expect that a New Testament canon might emerge quite early in that sort of scenario, which, in fact, I've argued in a number of places that's exactly what happened. That's misconception one. Let me mention second one, and this is a biggie. This is maybe one of the most common amongst evangelicals. I would imagine even common here at Covenant College, common even among people I talk in the academic community with. And here's the second misconception, and that is this that the authors of the New Testament did not think they were writing Scripture. The authors of the New Testament did not think they were writing Scripture. There's this widespread sort of assumption out there that when the New Testament authors wrote, they kind of had no idea what they were doing. They were just writing books, letters. Uh, When Paul wrote the letter of Romans, he was just writing his advice to the church at Rome. He was just writing a letter like I would write a letter. Um, and that when the gospel writers are writing their gospels, well, they're just historical documents like any historical document. And so there's the sense that writers wrote unaware of their own authority with no intention that their books would be authoritative documents, and then it was only much later that the church looked at those books and decided they should be scripture. So the way the narrative works is Paul wrote Romans or Luke wrote Luke, and these books just sat around for a couple hundred years, and people used them, yeah, and liked them. But it wasn't until much later that the church looked at these books and go, you know what? These books are great. In fact, they're so great, I think we should call these books scripture. What do you think? You think we should call these books? Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, all in favor, you know, it's like a presbytery meeting, right? All in favor, raise your hand. Okay, so these are the books that we now regard as scripture or, in, you know, sort of infused with scriptural authority. Now, that narrative is also widespread. It's a big misconception. Um, and if you believe that misconception, here's what's going to happen. You're going you're gonna to think the canon, the New Testament canon, is a very late development. Because if the New Testament writers weren't thinking they were writing with authority, then no one would have thought they were writing with authority in the earliest centuries. And it wouldn't have been until much, much later that someone sort of said, we ought to think of these books as authoritative, but it would have been sort of artificial. And it would have been late. And it would have been out of sync with what the original authors were intending anyway. And so this whole idea of a New Testament collection of books just seems utterly foreign as a result of that idea. Now, I think the evidence against this misconception is vast. Um, I've gone through verse after verse showing this, both in the Gospels and in the letters of Paul and other letters in the New Testament in one of my books called The Question of Canon. I won't go into all that here, but I do want to read one verse that I think captures what I'm getting at. It's a verse in 1 Corinthians. Why don't you listen to what Paul says in this one verse, 1 Corinthians 14. He says this, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now that little statement tucked away in 1 Corinthians, Paul says something remarkable. 
basically says if you, you consider yourself spiritually minded, maybe even you have the gift of prophecy, then you'll know that what I'm writing to you is the very commandment of the Lord. And by Lord here, he means Jesus. And what Paul is doing here is he's doing what apostles do, is they speak for Christ. They are his mouthpiece. They write with his authority. So if an apostle that bears the authority of Christ wrote things that, are, that, that, that bear Christ's authority, those books would have been seen from the very start as having the highest level of authority you could have. He, in fact, is equating his own words here, not just oral words, I might add. Notice what he says. The things which I write to you are the Lord's command. Paul spoke for Jesus. So did the other apostles. And I would argue that all the books of the New Testament contain that apostolic teaching. What does that mean? That means that you didn't have to wait to the 4th century for, for you to have the beginnings of a canon. Because as soon as Paul wrote these books and people recognized his apostolic authority, those books would have already from the start taken on a certain level of authority in the lives of believers. The kind of authority that Paul says, if you don't recognize, then, then you're not recognized. That's a form of sort of church discipline. It's like if you can't recognize that I speak for Christ, then you are on the outs uh, in terms of your connection uh, to Christ. That's just one example of many that I think are in the New Testament that show you that when the New Testament was written, there was an inherent, organic, maybe natural sense that these books were not just occasional documents, but written with a level of authority that makes it make sense why they ended up in our Bibles. Third misconception about the New Testament canon, and that is that early Christians disagreed widely over which books belonged in the New Testament. Early Christians disagreed widely over which books belonged in the New Testament. There's a narrative that goes with this misconception too, and this was all over the Da Vinci Code, if you read that book. Um, and that idea is that, well, in early Christianity, no one really knew what to read. And Christians were all over the place. And they were reading this, and they were reading that, and there was a bunch of disagreement. And if you are at my lecture yesterday, I mentioned the name Walter Bauer, who fed this, sort of this idea that Christians couldn't get along and agree on much of anything, and it was just sort of this literary free-for-all and it was only till the 4th century or 5th century that the church decided to clamp down on this sort of literary diversity and sort of decide, well, you know, we need to have a canon and here's what it is and, and you know, love it or hate it or like it or not, these are the books and tough luck if you don't, right? That kind of sort of top-down, make the canon happen. And before that, we're told, Christians just didn't agree. They read all kinds of books. Now, I suppose if you're writing a book like The Da Vinci Code or you just want to be a skeptic about Christianity, that's a great narrative. And it makes it look like your Bibles are the product of a political move in the fourth century. And that before that, no one agreed on much of anything. But, like I said in my lecture yesterday, that only works if you don't look at the historical facts. Because when you look at the historical facts, that's not actually what we see. In fact, here's what we do see. What we see as early as the second century, and by the way, that's very early because the last book of the New Testament was probably written in the, in the 90s, right? So when you talk about second century, you're right on the edge of when the final New Testament book was written. As early as the second century, we see what we would call a core canon in place very early. And this word core is a word I use in a lot of my writings, and I, and I think it's helpful to think of it this way. So you have 27 books total in your New Testaments. The core is probably what you would call 21 out of, or 22 out of the 27 were already in place by the middle of the second century. So what includes the core? Well, four Gospels, 13 letters of Paul, books like 1 Peter, 1 John, Hebrews, Revelation. Those kinds of books make up effectively the core with some slight variants. 21, maybe 22 out of 27. That was in place probably from the early to middle second century. In fact, so in place was it that there wasn't really any meaningful disagreement about that. 
Now, what does that tell you? What that tells you is a couple things. First of all, Christians weren't confused mainly about what to read. Apparently, they were quite clear, at least on a core, about what to read and pretty well convinced that these were the right books. The other thing it tells you, I think that's interesting, is that Christians' disagreements focus mainly on just a handful of books. And I don't know if you've thought much about this, but when, when people do talk about Christians disagreeing, it's almost always about books like 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude, maybe James. There's most of the disagreements centered on books like that. And if you just listen to that list of books, you realize one of those things that makes those books all have something in common is they're all very small. Most of our disagreements were about little books, interestingly, um, and just a handful of those at best. And on one level, that there's an inherent sense to that, right? Because little books have less in them and are therefore used less often most, most of the time. And if they're used less often, then one part of the empire may not know about the book before another part, and there's sort of a natural opportunity for disagreement. And that's what took place. I mean, when's the last time you heard a sermon from Second John, right? Or Jude? When's the last time you read Jude, right? When's the last time I read Jude, okay? So it's, these are books we, we just don't use as much. What we realize then is that all this talk about disagreements actually kind of evaporates in a vapor when you realize that they only have to do with just four or five books. And really, the core books were established at a very early time, so much so that there really was never any meaningful disagreement about them. Now, if that's true, then that means when someone says, what's the date of the canon? Depends what they mean, right? If you mean when is everything settled and all the mopping up exercises are done and everybody's 100% finally all there, okay, probably 4th century. But if you're saying when was there a, a meaningful core that everybody was already using without much disagreement, well, then now it's 2nd century, right? So you have to realize that distinction is a big misconception, and that's one that I think is important to address. Fourth misconception, apocryphal books were as popular or more popular than New Testament books. This is a favorite, uh, and this, of course, was pretty much near and dear to the, the Da Vinci Code line, which is in the book, The Da Vinci Code, there's, the, the author says, well, there's 80 apocryphal gospels out there, and these were all just as popular as the canonical ones, and everybody read them, and so on. And there's this sense that material outside the New Testament was just as popular as the material that made it inside. And therefore, the only reason that, that some material made it inside is for probably some political reason, which I'll get to in a moment. But is that true, that these other books were just as popular? Not at all. How do you measure the popularity of a book in the ancient world? Lots of ways to do this. Let me just mention a couple. One is by how often that book was cited or quoted by early patristic writers. So we can just measure and count citations. How often is, say, the Gospel of Thomas cited versus, say, the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Peter versus the Gospel of John or any other apocryphal books out there? And when you do that sort of analysis, it's not even close. I mean, we're, we're talking about, take Clement of Alexandria, for example, quotes the canonical Gospels thousands of times and quotes apocryphal Gospels probably 15 times. So if you look at citation frequency, it's not even close in terms of popularity and usefulness of a book. Another way to measure popularity is by manuscripts left behind. We can count these, we can see these. We can know how many there are left behind. I mentioned this briefly in my lecture yesterday, is that when you look at this fact, too, we can tell what books were copied and what books were read by the, the manuscript remnants we have. And when it comes to the New Testament, we have hundreds and hundreds of copies in the early centuries and thousands overall, and apocryphal gospels, once again, are lacking. 
One of the things that scholars have noticed, particularly in places in, in some of our most populous finds in Egypt, is they're, they're, they're looking at these vast discoveries of manuscripts, and they're, they're asking a very obvious question, is that where is all the apocryphal writings? They're, they're not here in any meaningful numbers. We get canonical writings all over the place. Where are the apocryphal writings? If they're as popular as the, as the, as the canonical ones, where are they? Of course, the classic skeptic will say, well, they're, they were all burned by the, by the Orthodox people, right, or something like this. That's not, that's not true. There's no book burning in these early centuries by anybody. In fact, the only people burning books in the early centuries was the Greco-Roman government burning the Christian books. Not, 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 not conservative Christians burning heretical books. If you want to talk about heretical book burning, that's way, way much later. You can't come up with that as an answer. The fact is they weren't as popular. In fact, for the Gospel of Thomas, which gets all the press, it's hardly ever mentioned by church fathers. And when it is, it's, it's, it's just fundamentally and widely condemned as heretical. Last misconception. This is my favorite. This actually is captured quite well in the book, The Da Vinci Code 2. And that is the New Testament was decided by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. So this misconception is that if you want to know where the New Testament really was made, it was made at the Council of Nicaea in 325, and Constantine was the guy who did it, because we all know that Constantine was that sort of you know, nefarious emperor who took over the world and made Christianity official and sort of stamped his, his theology and his preferences on everything, and he created a canon and enforced it on the church, and on and on it goes, and it's this big political explanation. That, that's a fun one. In fact, it's all over the book, The Da Vinci Code. It's all over the Internet. You can just Google New Testament canon and Constantine, and you'll find plenty. Here's the problem, is that that's absolutely false in every way. The Council of Nicaea, which you probably know a good bit about here at Covenant College, has got nothing to do with the formation of the New Testament canon. It's not even talked about. The Council of Nicaea was about articulating the relationship between uh, Jesus and God, about articulating the divinity of Jesus effectively. Um, by the way, it wasn't about deciding the divinity of Jesus, which is another misconception about Nicaea. It was about the best way to say it, the best way to articulate it over and against uh, other detractors. But it had nothing to do with the canon, and nor did Constantine. Constantine didn't create the canon. It was already, for several hundred years, already been in place by, by then. So once again, a political uh, 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 sort of conspiracy here that has no merit. I think what you'll find in all five of these misconceptions is... People believe what they want to believe. And if you can give them a 30-second thing to believe that fits with, the, with, the, with what they already want to believe, they don't want to go further. They don't want to look any deeper. They're just happy with that because it can, it can alleviate them of any concern about whether the New Testament is the right collection of books, and they can move on. Moreover, we have a culture that loves conspiracy theories. We love the idea that for, for thousands of years, people have thought it was this way, and only now, with the help of modern scholars, we realize it was all false or something like this. And, that's just very rare that ever happens, okay? The fact of the matter is, none of these conspiracy theories are valid. What you have at the end of the day is a canon that emerged very naturally and early in early Christianity, made up of what we can see as a core set of books that were finally uh, solidified in the fourth century. Okay, so I've walked through these five misconceptions. Uh, was that quick? Well, yeah, that's really quick, right? You're thinking, wow, man, there's so much to say about each of those. But this is sort of fodder for our discussion um, and I'm looking at my clock here. We've got about, you know, a good, good, good little bit of time left to, for your Q&A, which I want to interact with these five misconceptions, other misconceptions you've heard, or whatever else is on your mind uh, over these matters. So let's open it up for, for questions. Yes. Yeah. About the what? Second one. 
Yes, the, the second, she's asking about more resources on the second misconception about whether the authors thought they were writing scripture or not. Actually, there's, there's not been that much written on this. I've written on it myself, and so I have to sort of recommend my own book here. Um, so I wrote a book called The Question of Canon for IVP Academic, came out in 2013. And I think chapter three or four is the entire chapter is on that one point. So read to your heart's content. You can send me an email if you think it's rubbish. Yep. Yeah, so if you didn't hear the question, how come the Catholic Church has different books than us? And that's a really good question. In fact, I got that in my lecture yesterday, and I get it often. Um, so the, the Catholic Church, as you know, has what's called the Apocrypha. And usually there's a, there's a verbal problem here, because when we hear, when I, when I talk about apocryphal gospels, people sometimes think I'm talking about the Old Testament Apocrypha. So those are two different things. The Old Testament Apocrypha is the, the collection of books that the Roman Catholics adopted at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, which are not in our Protestant Bibles. That's an Old Testament canon issue. Not that it's not germane for this discussion. Um, uh, but that is a difference between Rome and Protestants. Why do Protestants not have those books in our Bible? A very simple answer. Because when you look at the Old Testament canon in the time of Jesus, in the time of the apostles, and all the books they cited from, they did not ever consider those extra books as scripture. Um, not a single instance anywhere in the New Testament did they cite those books as scripture. Just let that sink in for a moment. Think, think how many Old Testament citations we have in the New Testament. Hundreds, thousands, if you took, talk about allusions, I mean, it's an incredible number, and not a single time does Jesus or Paul or Peter or John ever reference these books as scripture. That's exactly why Protestants have a different collection. Yep. Did, 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 did it, sorry, I'm having trouble hearing in here, but did the Gospel of Thomas reference the Old Testament Apocrypha? Is that your question? Yeah, well, I didn't say they weren't cited. I said they weren't cited as Scripture. Um, so there are, there are evidence that early Christians used those books, Old Testament Apocrypha, because they are well-known Jewish books, um, and uh, found them useful. But there's no indication they ever used them as Scripture. Yep. Yeah, right here. Yeah, great question. If you didn't hear his question, how does doubts about authorship affect a book's place in the canon? Well, Hebrews is the only anonymous book we have in the New Testament. Now, of course, we have books that have names attached to them that, that higher critical scholars doubt. I'm not going to go through those one by one and sort of refute them. Uh, Hebrews, people say, well, how can you have a book in the canon that you don't know who the author is? Well, see, I think when we ask the question that way, we're probably asking the question just slightly in a different way than we should be asking it. What we want to ask is, does this book have a, do we have a reason to think this book contains authoritative apostolic teaching? That's really the question to ask. Now, if a book is written by an apostle, you're, there's your answer. If a book is not written by an apostle, you have to have good reason to think that book is positioned in such a way to get authoritative apostolic teaching. Luke is a good example of this. Luke's not an apostle, but he says in his prologue, and we know this from other places too, that, hey, I'm basically an apostolic guy. I'm in the apostolic orbit. What I'm giving you effectively is from the eyewitnesses who were there in the beginning. Curiously, Hebrews does the same thing. Hebrews in chapter 2, the author says, basically, I, I'm not myself an apostle, but I've got this from the apostles, the eyewitnesses from the beginning. So he, in one sense, positions his book as being an apostolic book for that very reason. 
we also have in Hebrews a reference to Timothy and a reference to other apostolic people. And so it's clear that the data Hebrews and everything situates it in a place where we can be confident that it contains the kind of apostolic tradition we would want it to contain. Incidentally, this is why some people think Luke's the author of Hebrews. Side note. I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's an interesting theory. Yeah. Uh, well, I was talking about New Testament writings, 40 A.D. in the in the first century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to understand your exact question. So, do we have like copies of the Old Testament? Is that what you're asking about? Or when was the Old Testament written? Is that well over a very long period of time? Because the Old Testament was written over a bigger chunk than the New, right? The New we can we can see is written really from the 40s to the 90s of the first century. The Old Testament, of course, has significant range because from Moses basically up to the sort of uh, period of the exile. Um, so there's a bigger range. What we know a lot about uh, sort of the transmission of the Old Testament through the Dead Sea Scrolls discoveries, which is a fascinating discussion. If, you know, I told the story yesterday about the discovery of the of the apocryphal gospels, the Gnostic gospels at Nagamati, the story of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is equally fascinating. Um, you, you'll, you'll be curious to know that, that, that uh, both kinds of books were, were discovered by shepherds. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? It's like, oh, that's fitting. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were discovered by a shepherd looking for lost sheep. Yeah, you think you made that up. I didn't. That's actually what happened. They were looking for lost sheep and found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You had a second question, though? Yeah, so that's a great way to, 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 to ask the question. Did, when, when Paul wrote, for example, and this is maybe another way to rephrase your question, did he foresee this canon that he was going to be a part of? Well, certainly not in the total final makeup. It's not like Paul had in his head, well, I know there's going to be 27 books, and I'm one of them, or what? No, that's not, they didn't, it could not have foreseen that. But that's a different question than asking whether the earliest Christians would have received Paul's letter as a written text that bore the authority of Christ and guided the church. I think undoubtedly that's true. Now, do you call that scripture? Well, it doesn't really matter whether you call it scripture. It's functioning like scripture. It's as authoritative as scripture. In fact, there's indications in early Christianity that these New Testament books had an authority that in some ways was even superseding the old. So if the old was scripture, the new, whatever you wanted to call it, and eventually, of course, it was called scripture, it was as authoritative, if not even more. Why? Because it was Christ's teaching. And if you were a Christian, there's no higher authority than the authority of Christ. Great question. Time for a couple more. Go ahead. First Corinthians 14, 37 and 38. No, it's a great question. You should have been at my lecture yesterday. So I actually talked about this book. It's called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Um, oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, it was from that. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, so you, you recall then I told that story about the Jesus making sort of 
birds out of clay, and then they fly away. Yeah, that was in the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which is a late apocryphal, legendary story of Jesus as a kid, probably third century production. And by the way, we have numerous uh, Infancy Gospels and uh, people sort of, you know, hypothesizing what Jesus would have been like as a kid. Um, and uh, there's the Proto-Evangelium of James, which is sort of the most, most famous, and then there's others as well. So. Sure. Well, it depends what you mean by suggest. So do I think you should do your devotions in the Gospel of Thomas? No, right? Um, should you, as an educated believer, be aware of the kind of stuff out there and read these things? Sure. I think that'd be great. I don't think you have to to be a faithful Christian. You know, a lot of people go through life, love Jesus, be a faithful Christian, and having never read the Gospel of Peter or what have you. But you, you, you all are obviously here at this lecture, so you're intellectually engaged in this. Yeah, I would encourage you to read those books. You know, I, in my writings, I take the readers through a lot of these books so they can see the differences and learn about them. Okay, we have time for one more. Last question. I think 11.35, Grant, is that where we're at? Okay, so we're up to it. Yep. Okay, good last question. So the question was, what do we know about Q, right? And who wrote Q? This is a fascinating world of study. I covered this extensively in my seminary class on Gospels. So if you don't know what Q is, Q is a, is a scholarly idea of an early source behind the Gospels, okay? Particularly um, uh, that explains how Matthew and Luke got their material. They they're supposedly use this earlier source we call Q. It's from the German word quelle, which means source. So that's what we call it, Q. What's interesting to know about Q is it's purely hypothetical. It's just a reconstructed idea of what the early source might be based on what you have in Matthew, what you have in Luke, and what's not in Mark. Um, and so scholars have kind of gone crazy with this reconstruction. I, I joke with my students that they can check Q out from the library if they're interested. That's true. You can go to the library and look up Q and you can check it out, the Q gospel. And they act like it's real and that you have it and that you can reconstruct it. And they even have like a Q community that wrote it now and they've reconstructed that. And, They've kind of gone all down those paths, and at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just remind people it doesn't actually exist. We haven't found it. It's a, it's a theory. I think it has some interesting aspects to it. It may, it may tap into some real things that took place in early Christianity in terms of sources, but there's, we don't know what it looked like. Um, and uh, therefore, I think any reconstructions that are really heavily based on Q probably are, are, are limited in what we can be sure about. Okay. I think we're having to stop there. Yeah, you, no, you don't get to ask questions, sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So question was, we didn't hear it, how soon did these books that Paul wrote, for example, get copied? Was it much later or earlier? I think, I think uh, immediately. Let me explain. In the ancient world, when you'd write a letter, I know this sounds strange, you, you, would, you would usually use a scribe to write it. People often did not write their own letters, and Paul used scribes. Before you sent the letter off, you'd make your own copy of it. Um, that was actually par for the course. So what that meant is, is that before the letter was sent, your scribe would make a second copy that you would keep for your own collection. So you actually would keep a collection of your own letters. It's not that different than the way email works, actually. So when you send out an email and you wonder what you wrote to your buddy and you look on it again, you're like, well, you just check your, out, your, your sent file and see what you wrote. You have your own copy of your own email. Well, it's kind of like that in the ancient world. And so when was the first copy of, say, Romans made? Probably by Paul's own scribe soon after he wrote it. In fact, I think this is why we have the canon of Paul's letters we do. I think the 13 letters of Paul that we have are probably the 13 letters that Paul had in his own collection. 
Okay, we'll stop there. Um, I'll be up here for more Q&A um, afterwards if you want to talk, and uh, love to meet you. So thanks for being here.